Hey, Mick. Hey, hey, how do you do, sir? Good evening. Good. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. I got to tell you that uh, I'm probably a little older than you, and my son for Christmas just gave me these new headphones, <laughs> and I'm, I'm still trying to get past Atari and uh, Post-it notes. So. <laughs> I understand. So, yeah. I I'm also I'm unfamiliar with Zoom almost entirely. This is my second time using it. I, I did an interview with an artist on on Monday, and that was my first time navigating Zoom. So, uh, so so I, I'm also not entirely versed, but I think I can. It's simple enough what I'm doing that I, I don't think we'll have a lot of problems. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, good evening. Thank you so much uh, for, for joining me. Um, I just want to make sure uh, your 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 name is is pronounced um, Karim Hamid. Kareem Hamid. Kareem Hamid. is uh, an Arabic name, though we don't say that very loudly these days for some mm -hmm. reasons. But uh, Kareem is the pronunciation. You, uh, I don't. How old are you? I am thirty-two. Uh, yeah, so you might not remember the uh, famous basketball player Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, I, I, I am. It's, I am familiar. But but just like you said, I mean, I, I'm. I, you know, Arabic um, uh, t -t -t uh, like phonics are not something that the American ear hears so much that I'm well rehearsed in it. So when I see <laughs> when I see a name like that, I take a swing at it, but I'm not entirely sure if I'm if I'm getting it right or not. Uh, but again, oh, thank you so me. much. Thank you so Over much. Over the years, me. I've been called everything from crumb to asshole. <laughs> my my last name is Wachetta with a G. It starts with a G, and, and no one ever gets it correct ever. So. Um, but again, thank you. Uh, I'll just I'll start off by just giving you the the quick pitch of the kind of notion of the conversation. Uh, in the sense is uh, the, the point of the conversation is for me personally and for anyone who may listen uh, to learn from the insight of an experienced artist and to relish in the curiosity and celebration of a fascinating person who artists tend to be. Uh, so with that being said, unless you have any sort of first order business, something you want to say up front, I can start volleying your questions. No, shoot away. Yes, sir. So the way I like to begin is just, could you tell me a bit about your parents? My parents? Yes, sir. Oh, that one caught me off guard. Um, my, both of my parents are dead now. Mm -hmm. uh, I am I am 57 years old, just so you know, for the record. Mm -hmm. uh, though I act like a 20-year-old sometimes <laughs> after a couple of drinks. But... Um, my my mother is English, was English, mm -hmm. and my father was Palestinian, Arabic. Mm -hmm. uh, the dynamic in my household because of that was the whole gamut. Mm -hmm. I went through, you'd go through reserved English behavior, you know, stereotypical English sort of reserved, stiff upper lip, that kind of thing, all the way to violent <laughs> emotion which was the you know the stereotypical uh, arabic uh, mm. attributes so mm. that was my childhood very loud um the thing i did appreciate about my parents uh, even though it was hard going sometimes especially with my father is that uh, when i look back on it uh, there was just a rawness and openness in our household that um, I think has seeped into uh, how I work today, you know. Mm -hmm. And I've been working now as a as an artist uh, in various different capacities in the so-called art world. 
uh, for the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. So, so, so with your, oh, my apologies. No, I was just going to try and fill the silence. Oh, my apologies. Yeah, I, I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep volleying questions. But uh, where did you grow up? Or first of all, I'm interested, how did your parents meet? So my mother, uh, like I said, was English. My father was Arabic. They mm -hmm. were both, uh, they both came to the United States uh, through different channels, of course, in the uh, 1950s, mm. when immigrants were still very much desired and welcomed. Um, they met uh, in Los Angeles, California, mm. which is where I ultimately was born in uh, 1966. Mm. Um, uh, it was kind of interesting because my father, you know, typical sort of conservative Arabic uh, gentleman, um, sort of in Los Angeles, sort of saw women all the time in his small business. He he started with uh, small sort of liquor and grocery shops, you know, mm -hmm. selling cigarettes and alcohol, that sort of thing. Uh, in those days, you also had a bit of a butcher's in there. You know, these were like the old bodega sort of things, you mm -hmm. know, but in this case, it wasn't a Latin guy. It was a uh, Arabic guy. Uh, the Palestinians are generally known as being merchant class, mm. a lot of them. So a, a lot that have resided in other places in the world, you know, it's natural for them to set up their own businesses. Mm -hmm. So he had his own business. The business happened to be across the road from a general hospital. And that general hospital had uh, invited my mother, who was a British nurse, and they were in the 50s. Uh, highly desirable, highly desirable because of their their training, etc. Especially mm -hmm. coming out of World War II. Yeah. Uh, so she took advantage of that and moved to this foreign land. You know, this is a time before uh, you know airplanes were prevalent and stuff. You know, so she made her way over to California eventually and took up a residence in this hospital, working for them on a sort of a contract at the time, and so. As happens, what you do when you break times and things, she'd go across the road to this shop to maybe get a drink or a bite to eat or something like that. My father really adored her right off the bat because, uh, as he told us later, if we asked, uh, she was the only woman in Los Angeles that he had ever seen that wasn't wearing cosmetics, makeup. Hmm. My mother was a bit of a Rosie the Riveter type of character, you know, very... Hmm. Earthy, very down to earth, very uh, formidable, mm. and uh, so he liked that about her. Yeah. Uh, she liked him uh, for for very dangerous reasons at the time, as you might be aware of. She liked him because he was exotic. My mm. father was dark skinned; he was foreign, you know, from an exotic land himself. It mm. was, uh, you know, the Arab world. So. Mm -hmm. She really liked that. Um, she, as she would often say, she didn't like uh, white men very much because she thought they were sort of drab and boring. Mm. So they sort of had a frisson and they hit it off. Uh, that frisson was pretty fucking intense sometimes, if you'll excuse <laughs> my language. I'm gathering your your blood is probably Latin of some sort, right? Yeah, my, my father's Colombian and my mother is Appalachian. 
Oh, Jesus. So you're kind of familiar with it. It's, it can get a little raucous sometimes. Yeah, my mother has a type of um, a type of headstrongness, but she is, uh, you know, when I, when I say Appalachian, I don't mean to say it's kind of like, you know, that barefoot, uh, you know, dirt floor kind of Appalachian, but like she, she's uh, a really... Banjo playing. Yeah, yeah. It's not like that. She She's certainly <laughs> much more submissive. You know, they, they both could be hot-headed when I was growing up, but much more so my father, and she was much more submissive. From from the little bit you said about your mother, my guess is maybe they would actually collide in a way, but my, my oh, mother would typically... Cool. Yeah, my my mother would typically, you know, go silent, that, that sort of thing, when my, my father would flare up. But he certainly was one to flare up, and it's, it's interesting to see. Uh, there, there's still together and uh, it's interesting to see as they've you know grown so old their evolution uh, of passions or whatnot because growing up my father was so um intimidating and now he's so genteel and and we never see him flare mm -hmm. up ever so it's fascinating to see him to grow older in that way but um did you did you I think those are beneficial i think mm -hmm. you know when i've met a lot of people over the years and i think that kind of upbringing even though I'm, uh, you know, I can complain about it sometimes. <laughs> I think it's a, a worthwhile upbringing because it gives you different dimensions. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's much more real. Um, you know, the the you know the world and being a person and navigating through the world um, is a is a real process and a process that uh, comes into contact with frictions, whether we like them or not. And um, I, I think a. a a lot of people who grow up in these kind of over therapeutic situations seem to have, you know, the pros and cons once they kind of reach a certain age. There's certain things I'm sure that are advantageous. And then there's certain things that are just kind of glaringly disadvantageous. Um, but yeah, I, I once I once saw a therapist very, uh, very briefly. And, and when I was telling my, my therapist about certain things about my, you know, growing up or whatnot, she seemingly kept trying to make me uh, view my parents as enemies. You know, and I kept telling her over and over again. I, I know, yeah, you you made a face like that too, because you know, the, the again, they were passionate people with their flaws or this or that. But I kept kept telling her, I was like, "There's no way that the at the end of this process, I should view my parents as enemies, right? Like, shouldn't you help me rationalize and square Reconcile. their flaws? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, we should be very, very close. They're my parents when we get through this process. But again, that was still a neat little episode of my life. But yeah, I, I uh, they were they had their flaws, but I'm very appreciative of you know who they were as people, etc. But um, did you grow up in that bodega? I did in, in so many words because I come from that old school world where, you know, your children were considered extra farmhands, so mm -hmm. to speak, right? Yeah. In this case, because he was a merchant, you were expected to go and work for him. And so I started working for my father when I was about 10 years old. Now, being near this hospital was just one of his uh, eventual shops, but they generally tended to be because he was selling alcohol and cigarettes. And they tended to be in not so desirable areas, right? Mm. And I used to find it very funny as a, a 10 or 11, 12 year old, I'd be standing there and a client would come in of his, a customer, and they'd be like, Oh, isn't that great, AJ? Because they could, especially in those days, they couldn't pronounce his name off with Jamil, right? So they just, <laughs> you know, he was, you know, like the Chinese do, he just westernized stuff, right? Yeah. So they called him AJ, and they'd be like, oh, AJ, it's so nice that you have your son working for you. And he's like, yes, it builds the character, he would say. And I would laugh to myself because I was like, Jesus Christ, 
I'm surrounded by fucking halflets and and <laughs> shoplifters and goddamn child prostitutes and shit. I was seeing the dregs of everything, which again, if you know my work, has sort of fed into that. You know, mm. this sort of rawness. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I worked for him at a very young age, and I learned a lot from him as well. You know, mm-hmm. though I didn't want to admit it at the time. Because it was yeah. an asshole. So. Yes, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, we'll circle back to it. But very similarly, uh, you know, my father was raised on a farm in Colombia in the early 50s. And again, there was no, I mean, from his perspective, life, I mean, which is, is true, I suppose, life is labor. And there's no, um, there's no barrier between childhood and being embedded in labor so you know as soon as i was five you know i was i was spending time in the restaurant in a serious way and i mean by the time i was seven or eight it was just full stride you know working <laughs> in this restaurant which which i did until i was 18 but um well the concept and, of a childhood is foreign to them you know? exactly like, yeah, yeah yeah i mean like I, and, I mean play what the fuck is play go yeah, there's a piece it, of wood it, over there go hit that against yeah. the wall and he, he had his little, he had his moments. I mean, he was certainly striving to give me a, a, a somewhat American childhood, you know, but like it clearly was, um, there clearly was a learning curve and there was just little moments of it here and there, you know, he'd save up and get me something kind of special or this and that. But I mean, again, the, the idea of weekends being for gallivanting with your friends, it took a long, long time to develop that concept for him. Because again, like when I was seven, eight, nine, it was like, no, the weekends are good. You're not in school. Like, come work at the pizzeria the entire <laughs> weekend. So, <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm curious. You, you said that there's child prostitutes. We understand this... each other. Yeah, and yeah, definitely. Um, but you know, just is, could you just for a second tell me the caricature of a of a child prostitute? Like, I, I'm when you say that, I, I'm, I'm of course in my head not envisioning a small, small child, but you mean like a teenager. Uh, well, what we would call preteens now. Oh, wow. I, re- I was like 12 years old, and I remember this one girl would come in, and I'm heterosexual, so I was, I've was i always been attracted to women and girls, right? Well, women now, I should be careful. Yeah, I, I was, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so at the time, I was 12 years old, and I remember, you know, every so often, a young girl would come in, sometimes with her mother or something, but there was this one girl who used to come in, and she would be on her own, and she would... Again, this was the time and the place. This would have been the 70s. And she would uh, just hand a note to my father, and it was basically the shopping list. Mm. I want two pints of this whiskey, you know, a carton of cigarettes, a bottle of wine, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And there was no problem because he knew the neighborhood, so he knew mm-hmm. the lady, and so he'd give it to the daughter. And then one day, this I was like, oh, my God, I look forward to whenever she would come in, right? She was super cute. One day she comes in. She's pregnant. Mm-hmm. I was like, son of a bitch. So I said to my father, you know, oh, my God, she's kind of young. She's pregnant. He's like, my father, broken English, probably a bit like your father, right? My father was like, that's because she is a dirty prostitute. <laughs> and I was like, what's a prostitute? He's like, whore, bitch, you know? She's sleeping with the people for the money. Is her fucking mother? He told me, and I was like, "Wow, boom!" You know, yeah, why? You had a crush on this girl. It's such a such a, a horrible shattering of your illusion. Well, you'd go to fucking school and it'd be like Cindy's and Dorothy's, you know, in their little skirts, and and here was this girl, you know. It's like Jesus, you know. It's like 
So, you, you know, you see this other side. I don't want to call it the dark side, but you mm. see this other side, you know, and and uh, maybe it was the first time I actually had my heart broken, too. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know? Yeah. When, when, when she came in, before you knew that information, did you register her as a charismatic young girl or was she tragic? Did she seem like she uh, had a chip on her shoulder or was she just fine? Well, this was, you know, this was early California, too. Mm -hmm. So this would be the 70s before California became this shiny thing, you know. So mm. uh, there was a lot of, like, you know, immigrants coming into the area, a lot of Mexicans, especially a black population, of course. Uh, she was white, but she was kind of like what you were saying was the stereotypical appellation. It was like mm. a skirt, barefoot. You know, she wasn't loud or obnoxious. She wasn't out of some sort of Charles Dickens novel, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just you wouldn't have imagined it. Mm. I never spoke to her, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, part of my job was to shut the fuck up mm -hmm. and do as I was told. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, it was an early example of uh, my information was visual. Mm -hmm. I just watched and I watched and I watched uh, you know, I had a big problem with my father in my younger years because he thought this is, you know, before there was any sort of diagnosable diseases. He just thought I was dumb and stupid, you know, like deaf and dumb sort of thing, because I would, you know, I could sit for long periods of time and just stare at things. Hmm. Now, to me, it was a, a whole cinematic sort of experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but... To him, it was like, you know, what the fuck is wrong with this boy? Mm -hmm. it, so, it, it, oh, my apologies. No, I was just going to say, so my my sort of uh, experience with this young lady in particular was just visual. Mm -hmm. I would just watch her and I was just amazed, you know. I thought she was the most beautiful thing. Yeah. And so I was shocked when she came in with a bump. <laughs> exactly. Uh, also, it, it, yeah, your your experience growing up in this bodega, was there ever like a brush with violence there? Like not from your father, but from a third party? Lots. Interesting. And because, again, the neighborhoods and because my father, I think, invited it because mm -hmm. he was uh, my father was very easily triggered mm. and, ex and extremely violent. And, you know, I, I can have a violent mouth. But I've never conceived of like physical violence, right? And so it was a difficult predicament for me, this daydreaming little boy, you know, because he would often be like, well, I can't beat the shit out of those kids for, you know, stealing some bubble gum. You, Kareem, you do it. And I'd be like, me? I don't, you know, I don't want to do it. So I was forced into it sometimes, into the middle of it. Uh, there were other times where, you know, my father was very capable of handling himself. But there was also a trick that I've, I've seen even to this day when I sometimes, especially in New York City, when I go into uh, shops and I can tell right away they're, they're run by the Arabs, right? Because there's a system that the Arabs have where it's like, of course, the family's involved, mm -hmm. but they don't just have like one person, like you'll find it a 7-Eleven or something like that. They have people stationed throughout the goddamn shop because they're expecting something to go down. And mm. if you're all separated, it's very difficult for somebody to 
yeah. to get away with anything. So, you know, that was part of my thing. I would be standing on one side of the shop watching people come and go, and he would be behind the counter. And if violence flared, then, you know, I was called into my job, you know, which was to try and get them out of there before he killed them. Yeah. Because I was never worried about them killing him. Because he was, you know, I think he was kind of suicidal like that. He just did not care. That's very interesting. That's that's really yeah, I've never had I mean, even with the pizzerias, my father was very um I mean with again, like he he was one way with the family, but he was very friendly and charismatic and well liked by the clientele. And so it's kind of fascinating because uh, I think maybe we had four or five pizzerias in total in all different locations over the city, but we never, like, we, I don't think we were ever robbed once ever. And even sometimes there'd be like small little crime waves in our area and like, you know, the places on each side of us were robbed or something, but never him. And I, I assume that was partially just because maybe the folks who were robbing the place were familiar with the places and they just liked him or something. I'm not sure. But yeah, fortunately for me, uh, I never had to do that. And I, even if he had spurred me to try and fight some kid, I don't know if I would have had the guts. I, I think my greatest fear essentially is to, is to fight, I think. We're sensitive types, you and I, you know? I what suppose, are you going to do? I suppose so. You know, it, it's interesting because I definitely, I have, a, I have a, um, an under the surface kind of temper. I don't typically butt heads with people and I am pretty good at kind of suppressing my feelings about things. But I mean, I certainly have the impulse to become uh, very extreme, but I, I do a pretty good job at, I guess, internalizing that. And I don't at, at least at least it doesn't seem to manifest in any way that's particularly detrimental to me at the moment. I'm sure at some point I'll have an epiphany and I'll be like, oh, Lord, like I've, I've you know, ruined my mental health. But uh, but yeah, luckily, I, I don't really get into much fights. And I don't think there's very often that where anyone wants to fight. Are you me. married? Uh, I'm I'm not married, married. I have a longtime girlfriend. I'm sure we will be married at some point. But I, I kind of live the life probably very similar to a married person. And we don't fight. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, yeah. We we don't fight. I mean, we we have our our disagreements from time to time, and I think we do a pretty good job at kind of soberly discussing things. But um, I uh, I I was in a long term. I've only I'm I'm like a I'm not sure how you do. I'm, I'm I, I connect very deeply when I get into a relationship, and I had a relationship that fell through one time, and that was so uh cataclysmic to me that in this relationship i try to be very very attentive to not fuck it up like i did last time so whenever me and this woman have a disagreement i try not to give her any reasons to think of me as a bad guy so i try to do my best to kind of remove myself calm down articulate what i want to say and we try to have a sober discussion but luckily i we've never really had any sort of serious flare-up at all which is is good we'll see what happens fingers crossed i suppose um so once you put the ring on, you'll see. Yo, I know, I know, no, I, I, I'm, I'm literally uh, afraid of this, and, and and men always make that joke, and so we'll see how life goes. I suppose if it's good enough for so many men throughout time and space, it must be good enough for me. But uh, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Oh, right, you'll, right, be right, goes. Um, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Did did you have so you you mentioned you stay in this? But I just want to say to you this though. Sure. Uh, I don't wish to give my father, God rest his soul. A bad reputation. My father, like your father, 
was a very affable person, mm. very well liked by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even again, this is a different time and a place. He was very friendly. I used to watch. He was very friendly with the, the police officers in the mm. uh, area. They would actually come in. This is a different time and place, of course. They would come in at their lunch hours in little groups, you know, and they'd sit with him. And my father didn't really drink, uh, but he would smoke. And they would sit there and have beers and cigarettes in fucking uniform, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so they would sit there and shoot the shit with my dad and stuff like that and and have a laugh. So he was very well liked. The thing that I was going to ask you about, too, uh, with your father is if there was any violence, uh, I have to admit it usually was because it was uh, racist intent. Mm. The number of times people would say to him, why don't you go back to your own fucking country? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, you sand nigger, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And as soon as I would hear somebody say something like that to my father, I thought, oh, God, here we go. Put on the fucking seatbelt because this yeah. is not going to end well. Yeah. You know, my father, you know, he was a very proud guy, like mm-hmm. your father probably is, right? Yes, so. yeah, ex- extremely proud. Uh, and I, I'm not sure. My, my father's also 5'1". So he's a very small man, but very strong, radically. I'm worried proud. that I'm probably the same age as your dad. My, How old is your dad? But my my father's 71, 72, oh, something yeah. like that. Um, so uh, he's a very passionate guy, late in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he's he's certainly, and again, radically proud. I mean, he, he's five one, but uh, he's always standing much, much taller than anyone else in a room. Uh, very charismatic, very well liked. I like that. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very great guy. And it's kind of fascinating. Uh, growing up with a, a smaller stature father, I have no registration of height differences, really. Uh, you, you hear about it a lot, particularly when, when I was in my 20s and, and was trying to date and this and that. People would talk about the differences of heights and this and that. And, like, you know, tall people are more likely to get voted into a political office, et cetera, et cetera. And I always hear this, and it's so alien to me because I'm just like, I, I don't register it at all. Like, my father's still like the the biggest man in my you know, in my perspective and like, you know, he's so the way you carry yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I never, it's really difficult for me to, again, have any sort of um, bias or persuasion based on someone's size now. But um, what was I going to ask you about staying in the, Oh yes. So, so you mentioned, you know, that this young girl used to come in and you were uh, smitten with her and she would come in and you would start watching things like a romantic movie, essentially. So you're clearly very attentive in the bodega and it's having this impact on you. But while you were in that space, were you, were you rehearsing with creativity? Were you drawing? Were you doing anything like that at that age? Uh, well, yeah, I was probably, you know, you, you soak up a lot of things, right? When you're mm-hmm. a young child. Uh, I think the closest I got to creativity was, uh, was my ability to just daydream. And I mean, mm-hmm. I could daydream. If I showed you photos, consistently photos of me <laughs> when I was a, a young boy, uh, right up and through my teens, etc. You'll always see that there was a variation on the theme of the, the portrait being something like this: <laughs> mouth agape and just looking off into the distance. Yeah, 
you know, because as, as you know, much to my father's detriment or irritation, I was seeing all sorts of stuff, you know, mm. and and just piecing things together. If that makes sense to mm. you, I think it does because you're a creative person. So you're just, you know, things are just floating in space and you're just like moving them together and you're like, oh, I wonder, you know, if that girl's head was upside down, what would that be like? You know, <laughs> just strange, stupid things, you know. I've always been very, very curious. And I and I, I really, you know, to steal a, a quote from the, the famous um, film with, uh, God, what the hell is his name? Not Jeffrey Rush. He was an English actor, and the film was called Being There. Peter Sellers. Mm. I don't know if you've heard of him. you got to watch this film if you've never seen Being There, right? Peter Sellers in Being There. Mm-hmm. And it's a very clever film. But, uh, you know, there's a scene where he was raised pretty much in this sort of cloistered existence where he was sort of the gardener for this very wealthy guy, uh, but he never really left. He He didn't know anything about the outside world or anything like this. And so when this old guy dies, that's where the movie shifts into this sort of thing where he's forced kind of into the outside world, Mm -hmm. right? And then happenstance takes him into the most wondrous of circumstances, right? But Hmm. I won't tell you about that, but it's very, very good film in the the sense of observation. But there's a scene there, and I think it's Shirley MacLaine, the actress is is playing the, the wife of some other wealthy guy, and she's trying to seduce him or something like that. And he just sort of says to her, she says something flirtatious to him or something. And he just says, I like to watch. But he's not, she thinks he's talking about something sexual, right? Yeah. She's like, oh, this is fucking kinky, right? But he's actually talking about the television. Mm. That's, all, that's all he knows is the television. He would just sit and watch the television. So he says, to her, I like to watch. And he has this deadpan expression throughout the film, right? Mm. And that's basically me. I love to watch. Mm-hmm. If you get me going like you are now, I love to talk too. Mm-hmm. But I don't like small talk. Mm-hmm. I can't stand small talk. I'm afraid my battery's going to run out here. Hang on. I'm still sure. here. No, no, no worries. My, my guess is where I'm going to do this content typically is I'm just going to strip the audio into podcast. And so if there's ever a lull like this or something, or if you need to go to the restroom or anything like that, I'll just fast forward in the audio so folks don't you know, have to have the lull or anything and, um, and seriously nick you gotta be straight with me i i can go off on all sorts of tangents right i spend a lot of time on my own so mm-hmm. given the opportunity to talk i'll mm-hmm. do so <laughs> yeah, no, no 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 worries this is uh specifically what i want um when i look up um other content about artists uh, listening, it, it's always this really kind of, in a way, overproduced marketing vehicle when there's interviews or if there's little clips on YouTube or something like that. And what I wanted to do with this is just have talks with artists. And my, my guess is the conversation will eventually start to gravitate a bit more about your practice as a painter. But you know what? So for if, if this conversation had existed online when I was following you, I would have loved to hear it because I just want to hear you know, these people, the people fascinate me and I want to just hear, you know, 
these people exposed, you know, whether they're talking about their painting or anything. So again, so so feel free to to chat about anything you'd like. But fast forwarding a bit to your artistic practice, at what age did you kind of start either dabbling more seriously in creativity or did you just kind of decide, you know, I think I want to go down a path of being a painter? I used to like to draw, uh, you know, copy pictures and things, but I used mm. to like to draw, of all things, UFOs. I used to just, mm. I would make up spaceships, right? That was my furthest incantation. And I would have uh, been, like, when I was about 12. Then when I was about 13, uh, the most formal sort of influence that really shaped me and changed things around for me and basically uh, made me focus on, um, on the art practice was uh, with my mother uh, in Paris and we went to the uh, Louvre Museum, right? And I remember the first time I went in there, I wasn't there for very long because I have a, a funny story again with my father who consistently reminded me of a different world, right? So I went to the Louvre. My mother was very much like that. She was very sort of uh, educated and was interested in having her children be educated, even though my mother was uh, only a nurse, you know, educated as a nurse. She was, you know, she had a decent education when she was growing up herself in England. And, and so she was very much adamant about uh, not only getting us out of California whenever possible, so a large portion of my life when I was younger was moving back and forth between England and um, and the old England and uh, in, in California. And so, you know, fast forward, here we are outside the Louvre. She's like, let's go inside. I think Shereen will really like this experience. My father was more of the attitude of like, what the fuck is this place? You know, this is boring, right? So we go in and for the first sort of half an hour, she's got me looking and we're looking at things. And I discovered Caravaggio, mm. the death of the Virgin, mm. and perhaps you'll be able to uh, sort of um, understand this in a deeper sense. But there was just something about that painting, something about the way the light was hitting it at that time of day, and I've seen it numerous times in person since then at the Louvre. But that day, I just it just spoke to me, and I just stood there for minutes just staring at it again, you know, <laughs> like that, right? Until my father sort of like, this is shit, you know, let's get out of here, you know. You know, my wife can go and look at things, but Kareem, you're coming with me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but I, you know, Dad, I want to, you know, I want to look at things. This is fucking awesome. I didn't say that out loud, mm -hmm. but... So you got to do what your dad wants you to do at that age, especially, especially when he can get violent within seconds, right? So I, was, so I went outside of the Louvre with my father and across the road. I don't know if you've been to the Louvre before, but, you know, very nearby. It's There's the neighborhood and it's got cafes and everything like that. And my father had this brown bag and he had these apples in it. And he's like, let's sit and have some apples outside the Louvre, right? So I'm sat with him. 13-year-old boy, 
you know, I've already had about three years experience working for him. So I kind of know how he thinks. And he's like, ah, oh, shit, you know, we don't have anything to eat the apples with because old school, you take the knife, you know, and you mm-hmm. whittle the apple, right? So he's like, hmm, Kareem, over there, across the road, you see that cafe? It's one of those sprawling French cafes, right? Parisian cafes. I was like, yeah. He's like, go over there and steal a knife. So I don't, you know, go over and steal a knife. I was like, shit. Okay. Right? So I cross the boulevard. I go over to the cafe. And I'm very good at that kind of stuff, right? Because nobody expects a kid who looks like he's autistic, right? (laughs) Staring off into space. So I got the knife. And I came back. And my father and I, you know, cut up these apples and just had apples outside of the loo. But inside of that loop, for however long I was in there, about an hour maybe, if I was lucky, I I got to see that Caravaggio, and that thing stayed with me forever to this day. I even still have a, a picture of that painting. I like to look at it every so often because uh, I'm a big fan of Caravaggio. And yeah. that was where I started because... Even at that age, 13, going into 14, what have you, I was like, I want to paint like that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I set about doing. And I did until I got to about 20 years old. And then I was like, well, now what do you do? You know, I know how to paint like Caravaggio. You know, I can paint something that looks exactly like what it's supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it satisfies your ego. Uh, and then what? You know, and it's like, uh, you know, that's then where another journey started, where it was like, well, I need to sort of like, you know, combine my my experience that's happening inside of my sense senses with what is occurring outside in the world. And I have to find this middle ground where I can convey that. And that's where I started that. Hmm. That was probably a little too much information for you, but those words started. Yeah, a short answer to your question. What? No, no, that's <laughs> fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, so we'll 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 jump back on that. I, it's kind of interesting in a way, and I mean, it, it shouldn't be surprising as someone lives a life, but it, it's interesting to hear that your first fascination um, with producing images was spaceships. I imagine just only because in my in my mind's eye spaceships are like these cold and technical and detailed sorts of um uh, you know images or objects to produce and what you produce now is so radically different um it, it, you know like no we, man fuck that no you don't think it's different fucking, these spaceships that i fucking created were <laughs> spilling fire and okay. they had lights all over them <laughs> This is not some sort of mathematical thing. Okay, no, this was right. this was pure emotion. These fucking things rock. Okay. These are like these are, they, these spaceship could fucking drag race. Let's okay, <laughs> I stand corrected. I should have imagined the the proper uh, Kareem Hamid spaceship is not what I was thinking. I was <laughs> thinking like a star destroyer with like many many technical knobs and bolts and such. And so I was like, that's so interesting that you know where you where you wound up is is so again. Um, I'm not I. 
I always struggle to find the proper words, but, um, you know, ah, yikes. I, I, I don't know how to describe exactly how it is you paint, um, but um, well, high let me give resolution. You these, these spaceships also always had that 13-year-old girl that I had the crush on. Mm-hmm. The pregnant 13-year-old girl, she was always on these spaceships <laughs> naked. So, so in joking. that way... It's a, very, just... it's a very bad joke. Edit yeah. that part out. I can't if you want me to, but it should be okay. But um, you, so so how quickly... So you, so you say you kind of reached the 20 years old and you say it's time for me to explore something a bit more... Um, a bit more, maybe, I don't know if autobiographical is the word, but you've had your fun rehearsing, aiming for someone else's approach, and now it's time for you to explore something a bit more personal or, or discover something new? Yeah, so when I was about 17 and I and I finished school and I started to go towards being a, an art student, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing happened, you know, I couldn't easily become just an art student because... There was in between art and me was my father again, mm-hmm. who very much expected me to take over the, this so-called family business mm-hmm. and sit where he could always see me, mm-hmm. you know, and control me and that sort of thing, right? So I had to figure out a way to to get through it. So my whole life has been a matter of um, practicalities and, and measured with you know my eccentricities. And mm-hmm. so when I was about 17 or 18, I started taking art classes because I couldn't formally, you know, just uh, uh, do a degree at an art school, right? Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't allow it. And as he said to me, uh, you know, outright, I'll fucking kill you. And mm-hmm. he meant it, right? Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, I don't want to die just yet, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I'll figure out another way around because I'm very adamant, you know, I'm very passionate. To me, art uh, hasn't become a religion. It is a religion to me from the outset. There's just something spiritual about it. So in that sense, I'm like a vestal virgin. You know, I, I uh, guard the uh, hearth fire, you know, mm-hmm. for art. But 17, I started dabbling in art and taking some art classes on the side and things like that. And, and, and like I said, I sort of mastered the technique, because as you know very well, it's sort of difficult to find any sort of traditional training anymore in the arts. And it was difficult that at that time too, which would have been the very beginning of the 1980s. And it was, it was difficult to find anybody that was sort of teaching method, you know, or, you know, the traditional sort of um, attributes. Uh, now all you get a lot of the time in school and stuff is people teaching theory and mm-hmm. and just applauding whatever bullshit we want to fucking push out, right? Yeah. And my God, there's a lot of bullshit out there. Yes. It's just so full of shit. I mean, yes. don't get me started on that. But anyway, so I was different. I wanted to learn how to draw and paint like the old masters. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn a skill. Mm-hmm. And that you know, is a direct sort of um, influence from the old masters, this sort of 
you know, when they were they were not really considered artists, they were considered uh, tradespeople, mm-hmm. crafts craftsmen okay. or craftswomen, right? And so I wanted to learn that skill, and that's what I set about doing. And like I said, 19, 20 years old, I, I reached this point where I was like, uh, you know, I was proficient at it, you know, I was doing it, but, you know, it didn't really have any passion behind it, right? Mm. And so then what happened was I I became an art student officially uh, in the UK. I moved mm. back to England and I, I, you know, I was far enough away from my father that I could sort of conceal it, but I started to study art, right, full mm. time. And so I was an art student and I like to look. And so whenever I had the chance, I was up and in London looking at some of the most fabulous fucking museums in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And this occasion, where was it? I think it was like 1985 or something, 86. This time, uh, some of the museums, and in this case, it's the Tate Museum, and they're now, if you know, there's two Tate Museums. Mm-hmm. But this was when there was only one, and it was a fussy, old, musty place, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, full of some great fucking art. But they had this new concept where they were like, well, we got so much art that we can't just show a permanent collection and then have the other part of the permanent collection hidden away. So we're going to rotate. And so what they would do is they would, it's now kind of normal, but at this time they started this new concept of rotating exhibitions and they would usually do a thematic. So I happened to be in the museum this one day on my own, looking around at stuff. And as was my habit in this museum at the time, I would look at stuff, I'd get high, and I'd look at more stuff. And then I'd have a cigarette outside, and I'd come back, and then I'd go down. And a lot of British museums, this is the great thing about them, is they have they have tea shops in the, the basement usually, or in mm. this dark corner of the museum. And I'd go and have my little tea, cup of tea, and and my cake. And so I would do this circle, and look at one portion of the museum, go out, have a cigarette, get high, come back, and then I'd do another circle as I was moving through the rooms. I came into this room and I discovered this chap named Francis Bacon. Mm. (laughs) They had hung about six or eight paintings from this guy named Francis Bacon. And they were all in this sort of octagonal room, right? And I happened to walk into the room on my own. You know, hardly anybody was around looking at stuff, you know, and, uh, and it was just me and Francis Bacon. And that motherfucker spiritually, I hope my language doesn't offend you. No, no. But that motherfucker spiritually, again, I'm telling you, this is like a religion to me. This guy spiritually punched me so hard in the goddamn fucking chest, it almost knocked me out. Mm-hmm. I was like, eke homo, sort of the situation, like, behold. Mm-hmm. I was like, what the fuck? is this it was raw emotion right Mm. like i had never seen before this guy couldn't paint his way out of a fucking paper bag right Mm. he had no real formal training or anything like that but what he was doing was so sui generis 
and so unique, especially at that time. He became my new uh, template. He became mm. my new mountain. I was like, I want my work to have this feeling. Mm-hmm. And in order to have this feeling, uh, I quickly came to the impression with my own work, what I had to do. I think it was uh, Manet or Monet who said, it was Manet who said, you know, if you're if you're going to if you're going to be a real artist, you have to uh, sort of deny everything you've been taught and go back to being a child again. Something mm-hmm. like that. Well, quoting, right? Picasso has something he says along the same lines, right? Where it's like you've got to return to this sort of purity in yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of unlearn everything that I was taught. And as I was saying to you before, my whole journey it has been sort of finding this ground in between the practical and the eccentric. Right? Can you mm-hmm. see my hands? Mm-hmm. Just joking. Anyway, so somewhere in that range between Caravaggio and Francis Bacon was going to be, as you can see between my hands, <laughs> Kareem Hamid, right? <laughs> so I like that challenge because in order to do that, and this has been a lifelong sort of theory of mine, and I and I try to teach it to, to my students when they would let me in these schools to teach sometimes, mm. is you got to fucking destroy your ego. Mm-hmm. Because it's that old adage, anytime you really want to make a piece of art, every time you're more than likely not going to make a piece of art. Mm-hmm. You're going to make something impressive, but what's the driving force behind it? What's this feeling that is generated in it? Mm-hmm. And I think Bacon fucking hit that nail on the head. Now, just like with Van Gogh, you know, it, it sort of killed him, you know, in a sense, because, mm. you know, how do you keep that fury up? You know, yeah. like Mike Tyson, you can't keep that fury up all the time. Yes. So, you know, that was my challenge, you know, and I wanted to do that because that was what I was seeing before me was this thing that sort of was this middle ground between my deep emotional state and the reality of the world around me, right? Mm-hmm. And so, full circle, I think my childhood set me up to handle that journey up that mountain perfectly. Mm. Because I grew up, you know, as much as I say my father was an influence, if you, if you ever have anybody like your mother, like I did, who was a nurse, you, get, you grow up around things, you know, where... You know, they're very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Because anybody that works in the medical field can tell you that they're seeing, you know, blood, shit, tears, and death every fucking day, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I kind of could see around me too, you know. So I was always interested in this notion of artifice, how we present ourselves, and how we are. Mm-hmm. And Bacon was doing it very, very good. 
And I was, I'm not even sure to this day I've gotten my way around it. You can probably see the influence still in my work. Yeah. But boy, if you're going to set up a challenge, you go for the best. Yeah. Now, I tried to meet that asshole at one point when he was still alive in London. <laughs> and that's another thing I'll tell you right here that you can advertise to anybody who wants to hear this interview, be very careful if you go to meet your heroes. Mm. Because as you're finding out from talking to me, it can be a big letdown sometimes. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> um, you, know, you create these gods, right? I, I, I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. And here was this yeah. fucking bitter old fucking queen. Yeah. You know? Who's had he didn't have any interest in in the concept or theory and stuff like that. He just mm. wanted to suck my dick, right? <laughs> and so I was like, oh my god, okay. I didn't do it. Yeah. Um, swing that way. <laughs> um was that too much information? No, no, no. It's fine. That's completely fine. Um, I, 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 I worry I'm going to maybe partially derail uh, the the thread here, but I would be interested <laughs> in just for a moment for you to wax comparative between um, your a hero of yours, Francis Bacon, and someone I know that you have a bit of disdain for, George Condo. Whoa, wow, Condo. Yeah, because I, 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 you, 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 unlike anyone else I follow on Instagram, use stories as like a bit of a. I'm not oh sure my god! Yes, or something. You of this actually nature. read some of that stuff. Oh, yeah, I, I read. Yeah. I read. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm flipping through, I don't have time to stop and read everything. But yeah, yeah, I know you. You post a lot of like short essay or kind of like almost, I would almost like journal entries or something like this uh, to Instagram stories, which is quite unique. I don't know anyone else who does it to that kind of a uh, scale. That's why but, I do uh, it. Cause I just think it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I know you have uh, a lot to say about just a, um, uh, a complete disagreement sort of with what this man is producing. I, I would just be interested if you, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to go on to, about it too long. Just, uh, it would be funny to me personally to hear you talk about the difference between what bacon produced and what an artist like Kondo produces and, and the, the delta between the authenticity or the um, success of producing something that's genuine. I think, you know, you, you, as a creative person, you have a register inside of you. It's like a psychic register, right? Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, if you're on a, a date with somebody or you're meeting a new friend like you are with me right now you have underlying feelings you could be like ah, you know, this guy's a fucking asshole i gotta get out of this conversation as quickly as possible or oh this is fascinating or i like this guy you know or whatever right you have a feeling mm -hmm. right and so it's hard to register that feeling right which is the demise of the uh, art uh, critic in, in, in this day and age is because there's no need for it anymore. Anything goes now. Anything goes, right? Yeah. Like I said, uh, a lot of these people, you know, they could draw a stick figure and then you read like a goddamn, you know, treatise mm. on the side of the wall. Yeah. And then you see all these people who are like, oh my 
God, it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Right for me right now, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but Tracy Emmett. Right, I have to sit through this fucking god awful shit with them talking about Tracy Emmett, the British artist. Right, she was one of the YBAs who came out of uh, who came out with um, uh, Damien Hirst in that league. Right. Mm. And condos a bit like that to me. They're, they're all part of the same ilk. There's this pretense about them that just irks me on a very deep level. And maybe it's because I'm an old romantic, you know, but I'm not going to hide that fact about myself. You know, if you see Tracy Emmons' recent show at uh, White Cube, they're going on and on about this goddamn thing like it's the second coming of Christ, right? Mm. And I'm thinking... Ah, fuck off. I know that fucking girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm the same age group, you know. I, I remember her from London and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and it's bullshit. It's fucking, to me, it's not the second coming of Christ. It's the second arrival of goddamn student life drawing classes, mm-hmm. right? Where it's this half-ass shit, and then it's given this fucking pedestal. And mm-hmm. because it's making money, a lot of money for somebody somewhere, right? It's exalted. Mm-hmm. Just like I don't have any respect for the goddamn, you know, uh, you know, um, soybean, <laughs> right? But I have a lot of respect for soybean farmers, right? Mm-hmm. But those people who trade soybeans on the stock exchange, they could care less about the goddamn farmer. Mm-hmm. They could care less about the goddamn soybean. It's just something like tulips, you know, the great yeah, tulips yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. It's just something to invest in, right? Mm-hmm. And so these things, like George Kondo, right? No, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I met Francis Bacon. For the record, did not suck his dick, nor did he <laughs> suck mine. But I met Francis Bacon, and I, and I respect his work a lot, right? Some of it's absolute gobshite, right? But I respect his work a lot, right? And I respect Picasso and his journey a lot, even though uh, I have reason to believe Picasso I would not have wanted to meet at all, right? Mm. Because he would have been a free Mars Hall, right? Mm. But these guys did something that I can feel in my heart, feel in my heart, um, you know, that was authentic, Mm. that means something that has a passion, that has this sort of, um, you know, originality, this essence to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I look at these people like Tracy Ammon or George Kondo or Damien Hurst and stuff like that, so I'm happy for them. Make all the money you want in the world. I don't give a shit. But no way, no fucking way. Am I going to sit here and say that they're fucking genius? No way. No fucking way. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in the politest way possible. (laughs) I believe you. I believe you, sir. Uh, Is there, for example, is there someone that I should, is there an artist working right now that I should be aware of? Someone that you think is on that journey of being really authentic and producing something that's particularly fascinating, but but maybe -hmm. maybe they're partially in the limelight, but maybe there's someone that I'm unaware of? Yes. I'll spell the name for you. Okay. K-A- 
R I M <laughs> last name Hamid H A I'm just teasing you. It is eight. There, so are, there are some is, people out there that I, I, I look at and I like. I'm not really good with names sometimes, Danny. Mm, I should have yeah. done my homework so I could tell you. I can send you some names later. Sure, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, send it to me. I look at everything. I look at everything. And I don't mind if it's not like what I'm doing or something mm -hmm, like that. Yeah. I just have this radar that I trust that's inside of me that just... I can tell when something's authentic and when something's not. Yeah, I, I suppose know? maybe that determination is much more obvious in music for people. It, there's just a very clear distinction between pop music or like, you know, kind of that made for radio pop music and then genuine kind of wailing. You know, sometimes you hear someone wail and you know it's something that that it started with them just weeping in their bedroom by themselves. And it was, you know, so authentic. And there's no that that's so easy to kind of see. But in art, it maybe it's a bit more obscure and particularly, I mean, it's, it, I, oh, no, go it's occurring in all the creative aspects, mm -hmm. film, television, uh, you know, music, uh, literature, poetry over the years especially the last 30 or 40 years, you know, starting in about the 80s, there was a subtle turn towards value. Mm. What had value and what didn't? And how do you gauge value, right? Mm. And more often than not, starting here in the good old United States, we place monetary value on stuff mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so uh, i have pitched battles with my teenage daughter at the moment because she'll mention the name taylor swift to me and i'm mm -hmm. like i don't see much in Taylor. i think she has talent mm -hmm. and some of the stuff is fun and nice but i'm not here for nice you know yeah um, and so this kind of thing, this kind of value, and and you see it very much so in the art world now, the fine art world, because we don't have anything to gauge uh, good art with anymore. Yeah. We don't have legitimate voices anymore. What we have is the stock exchange money, mm -hmm. you know, the auction houses, the museums, the top galleries in the world, right? Mm -hmm. You have to root around there and you have to see what are they built upon these things, right? Mm -hmm. They were putting our trust in. And more often than not, these things are given value because money. Mm -hmm. George Kondo is money. Mm -hmm. Nobody is going to say anything, you know, critical of Kondo's work and be taken seriously. Oh, is that a cocktail? Thank you very much. You have service there. <laughs> yes. Wow. That's, my, that's nice. my wife. My wife is very old fashioned. That's very good. Yes. My, my 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 girlfriend's retreated upstairs, so I can't summon her to pour me anything at the moment. But that's fine. Um, Take a still image and text her this. Yeah, yeah. This is what Kareem's wife is doing. Yeah. The Cheers. Um, so one one thing that's interesting about what you're saying is. 
you know, for example, someone like Caravaggio, right? This is, again, I've not read a history on Caravaggio, but I assume this is a man who is embedded in an economy. In, in, in his day and time, he must have, I, I, I suppose, made money for someone. What do you think is the difference? Ah, but you have to remember. Mm. Okay, so Caravaggio obviously lived in a day and an age when there were not very many artists or artisans, but mm -hmm. he was more so an artisan mm -hmm. rather than what we consider to be artists today. Okay. The artists really started with, you know, the impressionists, where it was this sort of outlandish bohemian characters, you know, these these sort of types like Van mm -hmm. Gogh, you know, is a perfect example, right? This romantic life, right? Mm -hmm. But there you could judge those guys because of their skill level. Just like you can judge you know, some of the bricklayers I know in the world, right? Okay. Or some of the guys who paint signs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You judge them, you know, you, you their value is given through their skill. Mm -hmm. But in the fine art world now, you know, skill isn't very important. And yeah. so there's nothing to define it. There's nothing yeah. to define you know, the person who makes stick figures as compared to the, the type of work you make as the type mm -hmm. of work I make. There's nothing to to really judge it. Okay, know? interesting. So, 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 so again, it, it's a little hard for me to put my thumb on historically, but at least nowadays you're saying it's not, a, it's, you know, I think maybe you're, like you said, for 150 years, skill has kind of been slowly leaking out of it. But you're saying contemporarily, it's just about who can publish the most popular trading card and previously, there was um, a type of uh, objective skill that was involved in rising the ranks to this small raft of artisans, and then maybe influential people who act more like genuine curators are getting to choose them. And then they're moving through a kind of a temporal vector. And there's people who used to work in the Renaissance, but some of those people, again, didn't make it to our contemporary attention. And someone like Caravaggio, who gets... Um, who gets to work because of some genuine filters, then moves through the most genuine filter, which is the attention of many, many generations. And he he, he lands on our eyes today, and he's 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 been um, deduced as something very special. Does that sound kind of like something true? Definitely. Okay. But you gotta you have to remember, you know, times and ages, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, I'll, I'll remind you that something shifted in so-called Western art uh, back in the 80s when things started to take on a more commercial bent, you know? Mm. Okay. And so these people are beyond criticism. Mm -hmm. I cannot touch. Nobody's going to listen to me. Well, people don't really listen to me anyway. That's why it's so fun to do what I do on Instagram, <laughs> right? Yeah. But. It's not going to stop me doing it because I have to do it for myself. But, you know, oftentimes, just go to some of these, you know, personal, these top galleries, right? Mm -hmm. Like for, for shits and giggles, I follow, you know, Damien Hurst, right? And I just love to see when he just posts something. And lately, he just posts things where he's just walking with his fucking fat self through the this massive studio that his assistants have created 99% of the finished product, right? And he just dips his hand in a 
a pot of paint and throws it at the canvas, right? Mm. And then says something stupid and flippant to the camera. And, <laughs> and then I like to read the comments. Oh, my God, you're a genius. Oh, my God, do this, do that. Or, on the other hand, you get a lot of people saying, this is absolute garbage. You mm. know, this is bullshit. You know, this is pulling the wool over people's eyes. Yeah. But once you have this monetary value associated with you, like the soybean, yeah. right? You cannot criticize it because mm. too many people with yeah. money have an interest in it. Yeah. They cannot afford to see that thing devalued. Yeah, yeah, understood. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so now we are in a post-critical age. We, mm. you can't say shit about anybody unless they're like me, and they're not wealthy or extremely successful. Yeah, I'm open to that criticism because you're going to be able to say to, you know, his his work is shit. Yeah, uh, you know? I'll let you take a sip of your cocktail real quick. I'm going to run to the restroom, but I want to come back and ask you a few more questions, if that's okay. You're going to go and throw up. You're going to no, no, sir, up? no, sir, no. I'll be right Am back. Am I talking too much? All right, I've returned. Um, so well said um, on all that. I, I do. I, I've eaten up a lot of your time, so I want to at least touch base a bit on you know your actual practice here. I'll start with the question. Um, you talked about unlearning the things you had learned up until twenty, and then you kind of start on this. Um, you know, again, this path of uh, it, so also so. When did you first? When were you first exposed to Francis Bacon and kind of actually see a target in your mind's eye? Uh, I guess early twenties. Oh, would have been like nineteen twenty. Yeah, okay, it's okay, like nineteen eighty-five. So I was okay, like so, nineteen or twenty years old. Okay, so it's an intersection of a feeling like you've kind of um, you had a grasp on. Uh, kind of traditional technical skill. And then there's this epiphany of seeing Francis Bacon and saying, oh, there's actually something that's more poignant than than objective registration. There's something about, you know, putting your heart on, on surface or whatnot. But, um, you know, a, apart from the um, apart from the kind of psychological uh, journey of being able to produce these sorts of images, is there also a a kind of a, uh, 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 let me see, like a technical process at all? Like, you know, is there anything that you are learning technique wise? Again, I mean, that, that it's hard to kind of parse that, but you know, what, what does it mean to unlearn, I suppose? Well, in terms of unlearning, you know, it's a technical process because what you're doing is you're abandoning the formal techniques that you were, that you were taught Mm -hmm. you learned to create a certain outcome right yeah and so now you're you're going into the realm of experimentation but anytime anybody in any field experiments they're faced with their ego because the first thing they're faced with is can you stomach failure <laughs> right mm -hmm. can you stomach failure mm -hmm. Now, since I was a young kid, like I told you before, nobody had any expectations for me, you know, mm -hmm. except, you know, I was lucky I was born when I was because they might have put me into a psychiatric hospital, you know, autism or put tons of drugs down me or something mm -hmm. because of the way I was. So nobody really had any expectations. 
expectations for this guy who was constantly showing up in photographs like this. <laughs> right? Yeah. You wouldn't. I wouldn't either, you know? So it was easier for me to to take that direction, go into experimentation, take huge risks. So I was, you know, if somebody said, you cannot mix water and oil, I was like, watch me, motherfucker. Mm. Of course, I couldn't mix water and oil, <laughs> right? But it's still something I was going to try mm -hmm. because I wanted to see what would happen. Yeah. And so, you know, if you read my Instagram thing, you'll see there's lots of stories there where I talk about things that happened to me during this experimentative process. Sometimes they were accidental. Sometimes they were purposeful. But I equate it with music, right? Mm -hmm. I know that you like music, mm -hmm. right? So in terms of music, there are the artists, and then there are what I call or what people call session musicians, right? Mm. Now, you've heard of the band Led Zeppelin, right? Mm -hmm. And in that band was their guitarist, Jimmy Page, right? Mm. Who I consider to be a fantastic, technical, proficient artist. Mm. This guy knew his instrument, right? Mm -hmm. Knew it very well. And what he would do with that instrument is he would push himself outside of that technical bound sometimes and see if he could make sounds that occurred outside of it, right? Mm -hmm. But he would do it in such a way that it was tight and it was almost always fantastic and impressive, right? Now, I know guys and girls over the years who can play Led Zeppelin songs on their guitar, right? Mm -hmm. And they can play it to a T. But they didn't create that that sound. Mm -hmm. They're emulating that sound. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what I was saying about George Kondo. What I will say about George Kondo is he's emulating something that was already uh, expressed before, right? Mm -hmm. And when I'm in an egotistical mood, especially after a cocktail, I lay down the challenge myself. I may not be the most famous artist in the world, but fuck you. You cannot emulate what I do. Mm. You can copy what I do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some people do it. Some of my students sometimes, and they do it quite well. But you cannot. You cannot do what I'm doing. Mm. And that was my challenge from the get-go. And I think I'm accomplishing it. Now, am I batting 400 or whatever they say in baseball? No. Because that's the nature of the beast. You can't, there's no, it's not absolute. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, you know, to, to, to the, to the, to, to, again, to my, to my amateur mind, again, trying to onboard more about art and understand um, it, it makes as much sense as I can comprehend now. But I look, I look forward to listening to this again in the future one day and maybe, <laughs> maybe it hits a little harder. Session musician. As compared to artists, mm -hmm. what's the difference? And in that difference, you will see what I'm, I'm suggesting is at the root of art, if mm -hmm. you ask me, creativity. Um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 again, I follow you on Instagram. I'm looking at these images now. Um, I know you follow me because you're like one of five people. That's not true, is it? Let me see here. Okay, yeah, not one of five people. That's what I thought. But, uh, 
you, you, there's well, definitely last year it was ten thousand, but I I lost them overnight because I misbehaved. Oh no! I uh, I, I started, you know I'm very much about showing process and stuff like that, and it was mm. showing how I don't really sketch anymore. Mm. I uh, I use a lot of collage and stuff like that because I started also you know dabbling in photography when I was very young and mm-hmm. and so it's my sort of sketchbook and uh, some of the images were too graphic for uh, Instagram so they they canceled me. So I think and maybe I'm incorrect because I, I I've not. I did not follow. Don't you feel sorry for me in the least, Nick? I I I, I, I do, sir. I follow. That's a tragedy. But uh, my my (laughs) guess is, are you are you insinuating that there was perhaps images of vintage pornography or pornography that you're using partially as 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 material? Yeah. So so I mean, there's something. Again, I tried to block that stuff out. I tried to use. The fog is, but as I said to you in the beginning, I'm not that technically proficient with all the, the uh, you know, uh, tech stuff. So. so, so something I find that's that is interesting about your work, and that's something that comes up, you know, at, at a fairly high frequency, is this this abstraction of the female figure that is floating in quite a lot of setting. The setting is very. Um, I'm not sure if the word, you know, it's kind of, it's flat, it's geometric. It's typically seemingly like a bed or a sofa. Um, is this, is this just a, um, a, a derivative of being impacted by pornography from the seventies? Is that like. All of it, you know, uh-huh. all of it. I use that as my setting because. I often say it's the last vestige of indecency that we have as humans is is this sort of display of ourselves having sex or being naked or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I find it to be converse. Again, going back to my mother who was a nurse and taught me all about what real sort of display is, right? Uh, you know, there's this sort of difference between artifice and reality. Mm-hmm. And I find it funny that pornography in general is supposed to be this outlandish sort of revelation, like this revealing of things that are taboo, right? Mm-hmm. But in fact, you know, it's not to me. It's mm-hmm. it's just another level of artifice. And so I just was down in Miami for the shows down there, and, and uh, I had some of my work on display, and and uh, you constantly get this thing from people. It's like, well, why does he paint uh, naked women, mm-hmm. you know, like this? Why does he do that? And the answer to that is always, at least for me, is, oh, I don't paint women. I paint how men want to see women. Isn't that very deep? I thought you'd be like, <laughs> I need another drink. <laughs> I, I I don't mean to offend her. I'm also one of those gentlemen that if you give me a gift, I'm always like, "Do you want me to open this in front of you?" Because even if it's the best thing I've received, I'm just going to say, you know, thanks. But uh, but no, I mean, I, I do. I hear you. Um, and it's again, I I look forward to listening to this conversation again in the future and seeing if that strikes me. 
in a different way later on, you know, as you say, how men see women, because again, that that's something that's hard for me to wrap my head around now, obviously, because I think what you're producing is it's, you know, I think it's going through a process, but clearly it's, it's something that's coming directly from you. And I don't mean to say that, that, that the image is, uh, that the language is, is vulgar, but the language is foreign, you know, um, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to wrap my consciousness around that comment that, that would produce an interesting reply, I suppose. Um, but one thing I, I do think that is is interesting a little bit about that and something that I come to every now and then, although I'm not depicting women in my own work as, as sophisticated or as... Um, uh, again, like cognitively as sophisticated as, as, as you have been able to, to mature into. But one thing I do think is, is true and fascinating, because someone asked me one time, like, why do I, I paint so many women or something? But I, I think there's also just a fact about being particularly a heterosexual man, but I would assume just as a human being in total, that the image of the female is pretty much the primary currency or meme of how I view everything in the world. I, I don't, I think there's something maybe a bit about just, again, maybe the human brain, but particularly the, the straight male brain where what else am I supposed to see about the world? You know, it's just like, you know, almost everything I see is either a woman or related to a woman. Um, and again, I, I, I suppose there's something, uh, you know, some sort of primordial carnal instinct, you know, in the back of my brain that that makes that so. But um, but again, when, when I think about what interesting image do I want to paint or or the images around me in my home that I collect, they're all always a woman. Um, it's just it's the only image that that hits me. And it's, well, it resonates with you. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. I mean, I've been asked several times, too. Why don't you paint? Uh, gay men or gay sex and things and I'm like uh, you know I actually tried but I don't have the same emotional yeah. proximity to that that I yeah. do with the other yeah, so it's, it's a different it's sort of a different language it's like mm -hmm. saying well, why, why, don't, why don't you have an interest in Italian mm. you know and I'm like well because I have more of a proximity to Arabic say and I'm, I'm fascinated by the Arabic language because my personal thing you know somebody mm -hmm. else can do the gay stuff you know <laughs> yeah uh I, it, recently i i found myself i i did a self-portrait of myself recently for the first time just as an exercise someone had told me a, a painter who lives locally who i've known for years and years told me to do it as an exercise so on january 1st i painted it for myself just as like a little a kind of a bookmark of my progress but i did notice myself automatically i did yeah um, but so I did I notice myself. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it'll it'll be on Instagram. But I did notice myself automatically being interested. Not long ago, I went uh, to uh, a Christmas Eve dinner at my uncle's house. My uncle is probably again approaching seventy years old, and I was really fascinated with him. And uh, unfortunately, I'm too shy and embarrassed to ever ask him to pose for for a reference of painting. But I did find myself radically interested in his look. And later on, when I was thinking about that, because I was like, this is, you know, a departure from what I'm normally interested in, in looking at or thinking about. I suppose I was like, maybe I'm actually interested in my own mortality because he and I look somewhat similar, he's 70. And I'm like, well, you know, I guess if there's two things, the brain or my brain is going to fix on, it's 
women and me dying one day. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's these why. are the rude elements, right? Yeah, Life yeah, and death, maybe, right? Yeah, maybe and that's sex why. in between, as they yeah. say. <laughs> yes. Um, so again, again, I've taken up so much of your time, but just kind of to start winding down a bit, can you just again just kind of um uh, wax uh you know on these images like when you start this process you know i know yeah i mean i'll just make it like a sandbox question can you just talk a minute about these images because again like you said I, I don't follow anyone else and i just as a hobby just browse like the open well, let me ask you this first sure. how did you find my work i do not recall exactly honestly because you didn't you didn't know my work before probably last year when i was I think Summary that I think that might be true. I think Instagram, I'm, right? I, I, and I'm not sure if Instagram has a way of uh, of measuring that, but I would say that it's fair to say that I've probably followed you for a year and a half or two years. I reached out to you when you did your show at Alchemy, oh, and I went and, and I went oh. and, I went and saw I went and saw your work at, at Alchemy. Um, and did we uh, meet? We didn't meet. I don't live in in New York City. I reached oh, out okay. to you. Yeah. And uh, I, but I flew up to out uh, to to see the show, and I was it was very it was um it was very disappointing in a way because if I'm not mistaken, well, the show be the opened... first time I've heard oh. that, Nick. <laughs> Fuck you! Go see George Condo. <laughs> but uh, no, the the issue was I had bought a plane ticket. We were arriving Friday. I reached out to you to ask you a oh question God, about I the show. This. Yes, and you said if you show up Thursday, you can like come, you know, say hello to me, and I. I was, I was kicking myself of being like, damn it, I wish I could go the day before because I would love to go to like, you know, uh, an opening with an yourself, artist. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but um, again, I cannot recall exactly how I discovered you, but I do a lot of searching for, for novel imagery on Instagram and just on the Internet. And I remember I saw one of these photos and um, I don't know if I've ever had an impact as profound as Francis Bacon was uh, on you, but I saw one of these images. I stopped oh, what on, I was doing. Go on, <laughs> well, it's go true. On. It's true. I, I started. I was googling you, and it was very curious because for some reason, what I found on Google, the way it described something about you, made. I, th I think what it had done was it had attached your birth year to an image that gave me the impression of that is when the image was produced. And because the image that you produce has that kind of vintage aesthetic to it, I thought I was looking at a, maybe a, a painting from the 60s or the 70s. And so I was like, Ooh, who that's is, a compliment. well, it's, it's true. And so I was like, who is this artist? Like I have to, you know, uncover them. And so I started, you know, collecting these images, yada, yada, yada. And then I can't remember if it was something I, I discovered on Google or if I just started following you on Instagram. But then I found out that you were like a living contemporary artist that was still painting. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. But um, again, I and if you could see the art I have around my house, you know, again, I have an, an interest in the the image of the woman. I have an interest in the image of, I, I suppose, sex. I have an interest of the abstraction of 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 women and and again also i have a, a um a big affinity for um products of art that are very very clearly um material uh i love to see i, I when i when i see an image i want it to equally register as paint 
and as an image, typically. I, I really I really like that when I can see that it's really what it really is is an artifact, you know, on a wall in a way. Um, it it kind of again, it, it's kind of hitting me simultaneously in both ways. Like I want to see the image as a, a sophisticated human construct, and I want to see it as um, this is a the moment to ask your fiance there to make you a cocktail. Uh, one second, I, I don't know if she'll do it. She's probably busy with my dog, and I think I'm actually out of beers. I don't know, R R Rachel. So I can prove a point that you're uh, uh, just as nice as uh, of as Kareem's wife. Can you fetch me a drink? Thank you so much. <laughs> she's, she's gonna, she's gonna do it. I don't know if she's gonna. No, it's gonna be a bottle entering the picture frame. Um, we got ourselves a meme moment. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, mine, unfortunately, isn't as sophisticated as yours. Mine is is one of her Mike's Hard uh, Lemonade with no sugar because we're both uh, See, trying to... See, working for my father, <laughs> I remember when those things started first appearing. <laughs> the wine cooler. Yeah, that, 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 I think that's what this is. But um, again, so can I just set you free to just talk about the images you make just again like not, i mean you could talk about process or anything but again we, we've had a great conversation of like how did you get to this point of making images like this and again can you just chat a bit about what it is you currently produce well i'll tell you this right off the bat i like mm. you thank you uh, what i've seen of your fiance soon to be wife in the mm. background i like her too she's very nice so i will tell you this I am your portrait man. So if ever you guys want your portraits done, mm. I'd be happy to do it for you. Special pricing because we're friends now. But if you really do uh, like my work and you like my style and stuff like that, mm. then you might be curious to see how I envisage the two of you. So I'd be happy to do that. Mm. I cannot do it for free because... No, no, no. You know, I do have people that have invested in my art, so I have yes, to I understand that. Be exactly. aware of that once you're in the marketplace. But mm -hmm. that is my offer to you. Thank you very much, sir. the The primary thing, the primary driving force for me and my art, is not an audience. Mm -hmm. The primary force for me in my art is to convey the things that I see sometimes on a daily basis uh, that are uh, occurring with inside of me as a sort of reactive, uh, natural reactive element to what's happening outside of me. And so how do I rectify those things, right? What I see, what I feel, uh, and also what I think, right? Mm. And so that's my challenge. But my challenge is not to do it based from my ego, which wants to impress you or myself. You know, and I, I'm constantly, as much as I'm talking to you now, I'm constantly talking to myself mm -hmm. while I'm working, you know, like, oh, nice try. Oh, that's crap, you know. I don't, I don't just want to make things to make things. I have something that I have to do for myself, you know, mm. and more often than not, I've seen this with my friends who are poets or, or, and I write poetry too sometimes, but, and, you know, who are writers, I see it more so where it's like, 
you don't really have an audience in mind. You're you're just trying to uh, sort of bring something from your soul out in front of you in the three third dimension, so you could you could sort of see it, right? And so that's the challenge for me, is to do it in such a way as to uh, 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 convey something in a clarity that I don't see. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that's that's interesting. Um, that's really interesting. I, it, it's interesting to hear because I've only. Well, let me just say this to sure. you. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no. But this is why. I, I immediately took to Francis Bacon's work and I didn't immediately take to, to the even greater Picasso's work, who was seminal, like I had told you about my earliest sort of experiences with art and what what uh, guided me and con, you know, converted me to the cause, so to speak, right? You know, Picasso, without Picasso, you wouldn't have Bacon. Bacon talks a lot about Picasso in his early years. And, you know, a lot of his earlier work, which was destroyed, uh, you can see, looks like Picasso, right? Mm -hmm. So you work through these these things, these people, right? But unlike today, which is what I see, a lot of people working for an audience, right? Mm -hmm. Value again, validation, that sort of stuff. I don't, I'm an old romantic. I think, you know, I do these things for myself, right? If I'm lucky and somebody else likes it or or uh, sees something in it and they want to have it, God bless them, you know, mm -hmm. keeps me going. And I don't know how, but I've kept going for 40 years now, right? Mm, yeah. But you cannot... I'll say it again, like I said in the beginning, you cannot make a piece of art if your intention is to make a piece of art. You can make an emulation, a simulation, something that looks and feels and smells even like it. Mm -hmm. But if it does not taste like it, then it is not it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. And it's interesting to hear this again. I, I really look forward to to having this on record and being able to listen to it in the future. I'm I'm such a stark amateur compared to, to you and how long you've painted that I'll be so fascinated um, to again hear this in the future. And, and I'm let, not gonna let... I'm not gonna chime you. I'm not gonna chime you. But I've mm -hmm. got to tell you, I told you in the very beginning of our conversation, it's something deep inside. Mm -hmm that I use and utilize to um, judge mm -hmm. what is authentic and what is not. Yeah. And so, as I've said to some of my students, not all of them, for God's sakes, but some of them, I will say to you, I can look you up and down and I can say, you're authentic. There's something very interesting about you. The way you speak, the way you convey things, that is important to somebody like me, mm. right? I'm not, you know, influential like Elon Musk, so there's not much I can do for you. But, mm -hmm. but I can tell you what I see. And what I see is something of value there. 
But yes. I will tell you also, I got a difficulty with you mm. about what you said when you were looking at your uncle. You got to get rid of that fucking ego thing. Mm. You got, you don't have time to waste. Mm. You got to approach him. If mm. you see something, you got to go towards that fire, man. Mm. You don't have time to waste. So you got to yeah. go to and say, I want to, you know, even if he thinks, oh, you're a fucking nutcase, take it from <laughs> me. <laughs> you know, that guy who was always in the photos, like, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to see you the way they're going to see you. But you need to do what you need to do. Mm. All artists have taught us that. Any artist worth their salt, male or female, you know, or, you know, somewhere in between. God bless Da Vinci. Mm. Have taught us that, right? You must go towards the fire. Mm. This is our religion. Do you believe in the religion or are you just here to visit an old church? Mm. Those are yeah. the only questions you can ask for yourself. Yeah. I may be a little bit drunk now, so <laughs> yeah. you have to yeah. talk to my lawyer. Yeah, I, I hear you. And as I hear you, I think, you know, I suppose it may be the same as being a part of a religion where you don't know even if you um internally believe that you're walking the path of the religion <laughs> you don't know for sure and that 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 belief it could it can change in time so you know as i try to paint now and as i try to think about what i paint etc you know it, it it may feel authentic to me but again i'll be fascinated to see cuz i'm sure i'm sure the what you do what you did at 21 is not what you do now is my assumption and also your ability you 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 talk about that instinct to try and uh, detect what is authentic, what is not. My my assumption is that has not only changed in aesthetic, but has changed in um, ex, uh, you know, it's matured. It's probably become better. My guess is is now than maybe. And again, maybe there's even an element that you now think has maybe degraded. Maybe you think that you had a different type of registration that was more interesting or something when you were thirty or something. I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, I, I I will be really fascinated to to talk to some to you and other folks and, and hear these things again in the future uh as i continue painting and, and what i become interested in because again what i do right now and, is and quite... i'm happy to have a dialogue with you again in the future again i would it, hope so you know? again and i know i've taken up so much of your time but i really do hope that we can maybe do this exact thing again uh in the future and just have you know like a part two essentially because again yeah I, I would love to just keep picking your brain about all this um sure yeah i, I don't know if i have uh, you buy uh, the cocktails. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I will. I mean, if you guys, uh, if you guys want me to Venmo you uh, twenty dollars for a handle <laughs> or something, I can do that. But um, I, I don't really have. Do you think I have such cheap taste, Nick? <laughs> I, I, this is my point of reference. I twenty dollars. I thought you could pick you up a twelver. Disgusting human being. <laughs> Well, I'm I, I thought, top shelf over here. I'm I might, top shelf. Being being raised by a uh, a Palestinian bodega owner, I thought you would be very frugal. Was my assumption. I thought you would have had very Good. frugal taste in wine coolers. I'm but not frugal, uh, I'm cheap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, I, I don't have a, a cool, sophisticated question to close on. But do you have any? shows coming up are you working on anything currently that you're uh excited about for the beginning of 2024 
uh, nothing offhand, just making mm. stuff for the gallery and uh, these intermittent sort of uh, art fair shows and stuff. Mm. But last year and the year before were full, you know, with that New York City show mm-hmm. and then this Japanese show and uh, this last year. Uh, but nothing really uh, on the near horizon, so mm-hmm. to speak. So when you say the gallery, yeah. is that is that normal Royal? Yes. Is that a is that a brick and mortar gallery? No. Okay. How does that process work? What is that like? Uh, they consider themselves a private dealers. Oh. And so that's a whole nother long story in itself. Okay, sure. We'll save that for part how this two. This kind of thing came into being, but okay. It had a lot to do with the stock market crash in 2008 when a lot of uh, the definitions and a lot of the the gatekeepers in the art world uh, were no longer able to sort of put their noses up, hmm. you know. And so you could redefine what it was like to be a gallery or uh, an art dealer and that sort of stuff. And so uh, the gallery took advantage of that. Interesting. Okay, I will again. I'll I'll save my my notepad, and we'll we'll talk about some of this next time. But I, I will let you go, sir, and I'll let you go with just one final question. For the record, sir, did you um did you let Francis Bacon suck your dick? What a fucking! <laughs> Where's your wife? She, I don't know. Wife. <laughs> she left. Feel? She literally left the building fifteen minutes ago. I have no idea where she is. <laughs> There's some things she needs to know about you, young man. <laughs> I told you before, on the record, I don't swing for that team. Okay. Right. Man, those guys fucking... They, oh, you should have seen it. At this time in London, they have these little private clubs, right? Mm. No bigger than that room that's sitting behind you, mm. right? And these were like old school drinking establishments because mm-hmm. you had to get around the drinking laws in, in mm. England, in London okay. especially, right? And so they set up these private drinking clubs, right? And unbeknownst to me, uh, this club was set up around uh, gays, right? Mm. But it was set up around gays in the 50s, mm. you know, the 40s and the 50s. Uh and so at that time, you know, you could get a death warrant on your head, hmm. right? Just ask Oscar Wilde, right? Hmm. So they had to be very sort of undercover. So I had no idea what I was entering into when a friend of mine got me on the guest list for one of these drinking clubs. I traipsed up this long, narrow line of steps. And I opened this dingy door and into this sort of look like somebody's front room. And a little tiny bar with this decrepit old fella behind it, right, making the drinks, right? This mm-hmm. was not a place where you could get a pint, right? These were these were old-fashioned queens, you know, a lot of them from upper-class families. So they were used to their martinis and things like that. But as soon as I entered that room looking for Francis Bacon, right, who was a member of this club, I'm telling you, you can't tell now, but I was pretty handsome when I was younger, right? Every head, it was like that that, that cartoon film with the seagulls. They all turned <laughs> their head at the same moment, and they're like, mine, 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 right? Yeah. I was like fresh meat in this place. <laughs> None of these fluffy characters were interested at all in what I was there for, which was to have this meaningful dialogue about the the paintings and things like that, or passion and stuff. Mm. Oh, no. 
they were there like, oh, let's get his fucking knickers off, right? <laughs> now, what they didn't know was from a young age, I grew up in working for my dad, right? And so I knew these kind of people. I knew this neighborhood. I knew all sorts of, you know, eccentric behaviors. So I was just like, I'll have a drink. I'll chat to you guys, but nobody's getting in my knickers tonight. You know, definitely not. Even if you do have breasts, because we can't be too sure, you know? Yeah. So I, you know, I got, I tried my way out of there, but it was one of my first lessons in life. Mm. You know, we tend to perfect things. We want things to be perfect and idealized. That's what advertising is built upon in this mm. world, right? Yeah. Yes. And sometimes you're jolted out of it, just like you're jolted out of it in this conversation with me, because <laughs> you thought, oh, this guy sounds like he's very debonair. <laughs> in fact, one cocktail in. He's often running about George Conde. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, sir, this evening. I, I mean, I really, really enjoyed the chat. Um, again, I'll let I'll let a little bit of time pass, but again, I, I would love to have another chat again here in several months, and we'll uh, again we'll talk about everything we didn't talk about this evening. We'll keep in contact. We're both following each other on Instagram, yeah. right? So yes, we'll keep in contact. Terrific. Awesome. I, I, I hope that you do another a brick and mortar show. And again, me, me and Rachel are happy to, to come up and see it again. We, we really enjoyed it. And uh, all the folks at that gallery, Alchemy, were very, very polite when we were there, too. Uh, but again, thank you so much. Uh, I hope you have a great evening. I'm sorry I missed you guys. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, it would have been great if we could got up the day earlier. But again, no worries. I'm sure we'll, we'll our paths will cross eventually. But have a good evening. I hope your wife has a good evening. And again, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Bye for now. Bye-bye.